0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you're in second grade and below, you may leave now to go to kids worship. If you're an adult, you've got to stay in here, sorry. Um, the rest of you can open your Bibles to Micah, Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5. And if you do not have a Bible with you, there are Bibles under your seats or around um, a pew Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of Edinburgh of the Seven Seas, Edinburgh of the Seven Seas. It's a village on a small island, the island's called Tristan da Cunha, it's in the Atlantic Ocean, it's 1,243 miles from the nearest town. It's named after the Duke of Edinburgh, who visited there in 1867, but today it's simply just called the settlement. The town has a population of 300 people. The fastest way to get there, a six-day boat ride from South Africa. It is considered the most remote permanent settlement on planet Earth from any other village. The island is governed by a 14-member council. They're voted on every three years. There's one ambulance, one police, and one fire engine. This is about as far away from human civilization as you can get. And some of you are already wanting to retire there, I can tell right now. The most remote place on earth, Edinburgh of the Seven Seas. Now, why do I bring up a remote, out-of-the-place, place place on the planet that not many people have heard of? Well, we begin celebrating this Christmas season, and you think about the hymn, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was a town back in Jesus' day. That wasn't your tourist destination. It wasn't a town that a lot of people visited. It it was remote, it was out of the way. But it's from the little town of Bethlehem that Jesus was born. And now everybody knows the town of Bethlehem. It's forever on the map of world history. So, this morning, just briefly before our children come and, and lead out in worship, I want us to look at this passage of scripture. It's a prophecy. In the Old Testament, about Jesus and about, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, let's pick up in verse 2. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Now, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the Book of Micah? Probably not a long, Probably has been a long time since you've heard that. And I don't have a lot of time to go into the context. But Micah is a prophet that's basically operating the same time as Isaiah is. The Southern Kingdom of Judah is steeped in idolatry, but in the midst of this prophecy, you have some of the clearest words about Bethlehem, about Jesus coming from, oh, little town of Bethlehem. And so this morning, I just want us to explore five truths that emerge from this text. And and when you think about what this passage of Scripture teaches, it really teaches the paradox of Christmas. There's a lot of things about Christmas that just don't make sense There's a lot of things about Christmas that when you just stop and you step back and and you're a casual observer to the Christmas season and you think about all the things that happen, but the Bible tells us about Christmas, there's just some things that are kind of strange. They don't happen the way you and I would probably have planned them to happen. So what are these things about, oh, little town of Bethlehem? Well, here's the first insight. Here's the first truth. God uses the insignificant and foolish things of this world to accomplish his eternal plan. God uses the insignificant, the foolish things of this world to accomplish his eternal plan. Now, we find out in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, house of bread, is what Bethlehem means, house of bread. What did Jesus say when he came? And fed the 5,000, this one who was born in the house of bread. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Bethlehem, house of bread. But it also says there, but you, O Bethlehem, apathra. Apathra means fruitful or fruitful vine. What did Jesus say about himself in John 15, 5? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So from the house of bread comes the bread of life. From the fruitful vine comes the true vine. It's no mistaking that Jesus was born from Bethlehem. But Bethlehem, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're insignificant. Jesus was not born in Jerusalem, the big city. He was not born in Rome, the mega city. He was born in a, a really a little village outside of nowhere, Bethlehem, on the outskirts. Have you thought about how God could have brought Jesus into the world? Now, think about this. If we were God's marketing gurus, and we were God's public relations agents, how would we advertise Jesus coming into the world? We'd have a worldwide press conference, wouldn't we? And we'd get the Hollywood elite to come on the red carpet, and we'd have the top band playing, and we'd put it all over social media, and we'd have everybody and anybody that was popular. We'd invite presidents and dignitaries. We'd have a lot of fanfare. And we wouldn't have it in Sterling, Colorado. It would be in New York or Paris or London or Tokyo or some major world city to let everybody know Jesus is here if we were God's marketing geniuses. But that's not the way God operates. You see, we operate by glamour and by power and by prestige and popularity and fanfare. That's how we operate. But that's not how God operates. God often takes what's insignificant, God often takes what's little, God often takes what's out of the way and does something great with it. His ways are different than our ways. That's not the way God operates. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us how God operates. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If we were God's marketing gurus, we would not have Jesus be born in Bethlehem. And we would not have him be born in a manger, and we'd definitely not have shepherds show up. You know why we wouldn't have shepherds show up? In that culture, shepherds were the scum of the earth. They were the lowest of society. As a matter of fact, if you went into a court of law and you had a shepherd to come in and testify on your behalf, they would throw out his testimony because you could not trust shepherds. Who did God first appear to with the angel to announce the birth of Christ? Shepherds. Shepherds. God chooses the insignificant, the foolish. The things that don't make sense to accomplish his eternal plan. And it all started with old oh, little town of Bethlehem. So how do you respond to that? Do you try to figure God out? Do you try to expect God to do things on your timetable? Do you expect God to operate the way you want God to operate? You control God, you demand of God. God, this is how I want you to do it. If God, if I'm in control, this is how I want you to do it. Don't we often speak that way? God, here's how you need to do it. I don't like your plan. I don't like your timetable. Let me show you how to operate God. That's the height of arrogance, isn't it? To tell God how to operate his universe. But how often do we do that? Maybe not even consciously, but subconsciously you can try to control God, you can try to manipulate God, you can try to get God to do what you want to, or you can simply rest and find security that God's ways are higher than your ways and God does things the way he's going to do things. And you can rest in that. You can find assurance in that. Especially if you think that you're insignificant. If you think that you're lowly, if you think that you're a low man on the totem pole, if you think that God can't use me, God can't do something with my life because I'm insignificant, I don't have a lot of talent, I, live, I come from northeastern Colorado, nobody's heard of Sterling or Peets or Fleming or Iliff or Marino, nobody's heard of us. What can God do with people like us? You know what God can do with people like us? He can turn the world upside down. He did it with a bunch of fishermen. God does amazing things through people that aren't all that. And I don't know the last time you looked in the mirror, but you're not all that. And I'm not all that. But God's all that. Isaiah 55, 8-9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What's the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture? The child in the manger is the eternal Son of God. The child in the manger is the eternal Son of God. Now, look at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This is probably talking about the virgin birth. She who's in labor, Mary, until she gives birth to Jesus. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, that doesn't make sense. Talk about something that doesn't make sense. A virgin birth. Biologically, it doesn't make sense. Physiologically, it doesn't make sense. Genetically, it doesn't make sense. It's a miracle that a young girl, a virgin, would be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of God that would conceive the very Son of God in her womb. Luke 1, 31-35, the angel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Good question, right? How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. The angel answered her. I've got the answer for you, Mary, how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind just to stop and think about the virgin birth, take it one step further. The the son that's born in Mary is the eternal Son of God who has always been. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus didn't just somehow come into existence. Don't think of subtraction when you think of the virgin birth. It's not like, think of addition. Jesus has always been God. He just added humanity to his divinity. He's always been the eternal Son of God. He's always existed. Now, in verse 2... This one that's coming from Bethlehem, this one that's going to come forth and rule, he's he's coming forth from old, from ancient of days. Now, when you hear the word ancient of days in the Old Testament, that is code word for God's eternal power. That, that, that That is speaking about Jesus always existing. He's the eternal Son of God. He never had a beginning. He's never going to have an end. Jesus has always existed in eternity past. He's always been. He is the Ancient of Days. The prologue of John's Gospel tells us this in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. and That's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus, the Word, was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus has always existed. But yet at a point in time, he came in the flesh. John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you can't explain the virgin birth... And you definitely can't explain the fact that Jesus has always existed and yet came as a man, fully God and fully man. Have you ever thought about how Jesus could have come? God could have created Jesus full born in heaven and beamed him down on earth. It's kind of like Superman or Greek mythology. And we'd be like, that's weird. We we can't relate to that kind of guy. None of us were beamed down from heaven, full-grown deity. Okay, that's one way God could have done it. Or God could have had Jesus be born to two natural parents. He could have been born to both Mary and Joseph the way you and I were. And then later on in his life, maybe at his baptism or something, God could have infused divinity into him and he could have become divine down the road. Well, that's a little bit closer to us because he has two human parents, but the whole divine thing doesn't make sense. The virgin birth is the only way that God ordained for Jesus to be fully God and fully man, holy God, holy man, absolutely God, absolutely man, in one person through the virgin birth. Can I explain it? No. Can you explain it? No. Do we believe it? Yes. Why do we believe it? Because it's a miracle. It doesn't make sense But it's God's way of doing things. Think about the profound lyrics of the song, Mary, Did You Know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. Jesus, that little baby born in the manger, is God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God who's always existed. How do you respond to this? Do you scientifically try to figure it out? Or do you step back and worship the unexplainable? See, I can't explain the virgin birth. I can't explain Jesus being fully God and fully man, but I worship him and I believe it. Well, here's a third truth. From this passage of scripture. Jesus shepherds his flock with sacrificial love. Notice in verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He will shepherd the flock. Notice it says he will shepherd the flock. He won't abuse the flock. He won't fleece the flock. He won't manipulate the flock. He won't somehow victimize the flock. That's what the kings of Israel were doing during that time. They were abusing the people. But Jesus is going to come as a shepherd, and he's going to lead the flock. He's going to guide the flock. He's going to lay down his life for the flock. Matthew 2.6, And you, O Bethlehem, And the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. I love the imagery of Jesus as a shepherd. What do shepherds do? They stand out in front of the sheep. They lead. They guide. They protect. They love They don't drive from behind and hit the sheep. They gently care for the sheep. And that's what Jesus does for us. He binds up the wounds of the sheep. And he dies for the sheep. John 10, 14-15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus died on the cross for his sheep because he loves the sheep and he knows the sheep and he cares about the sheep. One of my favorite endings to a book in the Bible is the ending of Hebrews. There's a benediction, there's a a prayer that the writer of Hebrews wants us to, to remember and it's Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. By the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The great shepherd of the sheep. Do you realize that even in heaven, when we are in heaven, Jesus will be our shepherd Listen to what John tells us about heaven in John chapter 7, verse 17. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus came to serve us as a shepherd. Mark 10, 45. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, As a ransom for many. So, how do you respond to Jesus being your shepherd? You're a sheep, whether you know it or not. What do sheep do? They wander, they get lost, they go their own way. And that's the way you can live your life. You can say, you know what? I'm in charge of my life. I'm the leader of my life. I'm going to chart my own course. I'm going to direct my own path. I'm going to walk my own way. Thank you very much, Jesus. I don't need your help. You can be a wandering, aimless sheep about your whole life doing whatever you want to do and maybe one day even falling off a cliff because you're not paying attention. Or you can say, you know what? I recognize I'm a sheep and I definitely need a shepherd. So I'm not going to chart the course of my own life. I'm going to keep my eyes on the shepherd and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to walk behind Jesus. I'm going to submit myself to Jesus. Matthew 9:36 When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You're ha- harassed and helpless without a shepherd. But Jesus has compassion upon you and he will stand as the the true bread of life, as the true vine from Bethlehem. He will stand and he will shepherd his people with love and compassion. Fourth truth, in our chaotic world, Jesus is the only one who can grant true peace. Would you agree we live in a chaotic world? Would you agree that we need peace? Look at verse 4, at the end of verse 4. They shall dwell secure. They shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. We will dwell secure and safe in the arms of Jesus because he is our peace. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, Jesus not only brings peace, he is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2, 13-14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, what is this peace that Jesus brings? Is it one big, huge love fest where there's no more war in the world? That's not going to happen until the new heavens and the new earth when there's going to be an absence of war. The peace that Jesus is talking about here is a peace that comes to know that you have a right relationship with your God. Revelation 5, I mean, sorry, Romans 5, 1 through 2 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This peace is a right relationship with a holy God. You stand separated from this God if you don't have a relationship with Christ. You're not at peace with this God. And when the angels came and announced the birth of Jesus, what did they say Jesus was going to bring? Luke 2, 13-14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you have peace with God this morning? Psalm 130 verse 3 says this. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? Okay, Romans 4.8 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not keep a record of his sin. Who will not count his sin? Okay, I'm going to ask you a question here. Some of you that are good at math. The average lifespan of a person in America is about, let's just r- round up and say 80, if you live to be 80. Okay, so everybody hopes to live at least 80. Okay, some of you are already there and you're like, I wanna keep going. So you're 80, average lifespan. Okay, let's say that you commit three sins in your thought life a day, three sins in your words a day, and three sins with your actions. What's three plus three plus three? Nine, good. Let's just add one for good measure so that we can have a whole number, 10, a roundup number. Okay, so 10. So you commit 10 sins a day. That's 70 sins a week. That's 3,640 sins a year. And if you live to be 80, that's 291,200 sins. That's on a good day. And what happens if God keeps a record of those sins? What happens if God keeps a record of those 291,000 sins? God keeps a record of those sins, none of us are going to heaven. None of us have a right relationship with God. We are all toast. But blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the boy, blessed is the girl to whom the Lord does not keep a record of those sins. Why? Because Jesus has paid for those sins. Jesus has died for those sins. Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Do you have peace with God? Have you come to that point where you confess, you know what, I'm, I'm at war with God. I'm a sinner separated from God. If the Lord were to keep record of my sins today, I know what that would be and it wouldn't be pretty. You can't make peace with God. All you can do is confess your sin. And the Lord will save you and grant you peace. What's the final truth from this passage of Scripture? Fifth, the scope of Christ's sovereign rule extends to the ends of the earth. I love what verse 4 says at the end. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Not just Bethlehem. Not just Jerusalem. The ends of the earth. And see, so that's the ultimate purpose of, Christi- of Christmas. What's the ultimate purpose of Christmas? Why did Jesus come? So that all nations, all peoples, everybody on planet earth will bow down and worship him to the ends Of the earth you know i'm afraid as americans sometimes we hoard jesus to ourselves we hoard him there are over 1.5 billion people on planet earth today that have never heard the name jesus christ and how often do you hear it as a cuss word There are over a billion people right now who've never heard the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. They don't know the story of the angels or the shepherds or the wise men. They don't know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. They don't know about the miraculous virgin birth. They don't understand or know anything about his power to save them or to cleanse them or forgive them. They don't know that he's come to shepherd with compassion. They don't know that he can bring peace to those who stand opposed to God and their sins. There are people all over this world today that do not know this truth that we take for granted. But what does it say here? He shall be great to the ends of the world. People on planet earth living in darkness, whether it's in northeastern Colorado or whether it's in the tribes of India or whether it's any remote place on earth that's never heard it, everybody needs to know that Jesus is great. Have you submitted yourself to the Savior that was born in the little town of Bethlehem, who rules and reigns as absolute king over all the earth. Can you say in your heart of hearts this morning, Jesus is great. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I've repented of my sins. He's great. If you've never done that, what better day than today than to bow your life before this king from Bethlehem and say, Jesus, I'm not great. I'm a sinner. You're great. I need you as my Lord and Savior. Would you save me today? And guess what? Jesus has never turned away anybody that's come to him in repentance and faith. He stands with arms open, ready, willing, and able to save any who would call out to him today. Jesus is great to the ends of the earth. Let's be a people, let's be a church that make that a reality. This Christmas, don't just hoard Jesus to yourself, but let's make his name great. Whether it's going to Walmart, whether it's going to your job place, wherever it is this week, would you make it a point to have Jesus be great? In your life, off your lips, how you live, would Jesus be great? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. As we go into a time of prayer, and as we prepare for our children to come, continue to bless us in a time of worship. Jesus, we're so thankful that you were born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. You are the bread of life. You are the true vine, and apart from you, we can do nothing jesus you grant us peace you forgive our sins and you are great to the ends of the earth lord my prayers that every single person that walks out of this room this morning would know with beyond a shadow of a doubt in their heart of hearts that jesus you are great that you are glorious that you are the savior and lord would we all submit to you today with joy in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.